Welcome to West Virginia and Commonplace. Today I have with me Joseph M. Leonard. And me and Joseph had an interesting conversation about his last name before we ask him the famous question, who he is. Um, Joseph, before you even tell us about, about you, what is a misconception of your last name? What do people do to your last name? Yeah, it's spelled L-E-N-A-R-D. So people look at it and think it's French and want to pronounce it Leonard, but it's not. It's Leonard, but there's no O in it. <laughs> okay. Now, Joseph, tell us why you're here today and what you have going on in life. Uh, well, first, since we were talking about the name, I should throw out there, since it's uh, convenient, it ties into what we were already talking about there, is that I have to go by Joseph M. Leonard as you introduced me. So I appreciate that because I'm Joseph M. Leonard of Michigan. There is a Joseph Leonard of North Carolina who also has books. So I obviously have to make sure everybody understands that distinction to not mix us up. We are not one and the same person. <laughs> but I, <laughs> I've been writing my whole life, you know, since like grade school. Uh, I'll leave back up before that. My father, Thaddeus M. Leonard Jr., was the creator of the Polka King way back in the day. He had Ooh. a polka band and they toured. I, I'm sure they made it out your way. They toured all over, you know, the eastern coast. They never went west of the Mississippi, though, but uh, they toured. So, and his dad, Thaddeus M. Leonard Sr., also had a polka band. So I kind of got the creative gene from my dad's side of the family. And I, I dabbled in music for a while, but, you know, the, this late 70s, early 80s, it's not like today where anybody can take a laptop and download studio quality software and record songs or an album and put them online and sell them for 99 cents a song. You know, back then, you had to be good enough to get a record deal. And while my dad was, I wasn't. <laughs> so I stuck with, you know, short stories and novels. But this is my first internationally published book. Uh, because this just kind of fell at the right place, the right time, the right topic, because there's a whole lot of people who seem to believe uh, during the Wuhan virus, terrorism stopped. It's patently absurd. It's just that your news stations were busy with the Wuhan hysteria and didn't really cover terrorism. It isn't as if it went away. And also, I want to say that while the main thread of this book is terrorism, hence the title, Terror Strikes, coming soon to a city near you, there are a lot of sub-themes in it. Um, and I like to say it's not a book about death. It's not a shoot em up blood and guts all over the place kind of fair. It's an intellectual thinking kind of book and I like to say it's not about death despite the title and this main subject matter that holds the storyline together but it's about life and living 
and those both foreign and domestic that want to deprive you of your life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, whether that be through terrorist acts or other overt acts to deprive you of your life, your liberty, and your pursuit of happiness. Okay, so let me ask you this first off. Let's start off at the very beginning. Um, and we're talking about news outlets. And me and you both know about the news. We know that there's two sides of news. There's the Rupert Murdoch news, and then there's everyone else's news. So what news do you do you sense has a stronger feel, the Rupert Murdoch news or the other news? I don't watch either Fox or CNN. I watch News Nation. I watch OAN. I watch Newsmax. Okay, and I like that answer. Thank you. Thank you for being truthful with that because so many people want to say this or that. And I'm the type of person now that I kind of stay away from the news. I hear, I like to hear folklore before I hear the news. I know that sounds a little <laughs> wild, but, but sometimes the folklore sometimes tells a lot more truth than what you hear yeah. in the news. Well, so, uh, since we're on the topic of news, one of my chapters is called LLDA, which is Arabic for the propaganda. And I go into the biases of the media in that chapter, because you've got to understand that, obviously, every side has their own propaganda. In a war, look at Ukraine and Russia. Both of them put out their own propaganda. And it's difficult and for the average person to discern which side, wherein the truth lies. And a lot of times it may be in the middle. Okay. And you use the word I like to hear discern, but I'm going to switch it around. Discernment is something that not everybody possesses. That's something I learned a, a long time in my life. Kind, of, kind of like common sense. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So so let's do this real quick uh, before we get too deep into anything. So let's, let's get your take on this real quick. Social media is news because a lot of people in certain circles, not everywhere, but social media, Facebook is the news outlet for some people. Yeah. Well, younger folks mainly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and other and other places, like you know, some people will read the news that's curated from Apple, the news that's curated from Google, because Google puts certain searches or certain news at the top of your Google search when you're on an Android phone or whatever type of phone. So, that's what is what, your, that's why I use DuckDuckGo and Jibberoo. I don't. I use Google for shopping. They're great if you're looking for a widget. They're, they're a great place to find where the cheapest widget is. But yeah, as far as truthful information, uh-uh. <laughs> uh, they, they filter the news. And I'll tell you, if you go search it for my book on DuckDuckGo, you'll find it right away. You go search it for me or my book, a lot of the results regarding me are suppressed on Google. Wow. I have, I, I, like I said, I've been writing my whole life. I, I'm a former IT guy, so I've been on the internet before it was ever called the internet. I've been on the internet before there was ever such a thing called an email, just chat rooms or, or uh, you know. So you were back in the IRC days? <laughs> yeah, using, yeah. I, CompuServe, Netscape? Compu, I was just going to, you took the word right out of my mouth. So you know CompuServe, huh? yeah. Yes, CompuServe sir, I'm 37. Great, yeah. So there were message boards. That's how you communicated. We didn't have email. But, so I go back to that. So I've been writing blogs 
before the term blog was ever created. And uh, you won't find my articles on Google, but you can on DuckDuckGo. <laughs> okay, and that's amazing there. So let, let's talk about this, the lockdowns uh, and terror and, and how, you know, terrorism didn't stop. Um, what made you become intrigued with this? And the reason I use the word intrigued is because everybody has a, a nature to want to know more information about things because we hear certain things. And then when you start hearing, like an example is just an, a, 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 you know, something in the media. One thing that got caught me was, uh, and it doesn't matter about the act of violence or whatever, when someone gets killed and it's some type of brutality, it doesn't matter who does the brutality, police or whatever. When you hear all the side of the story, you get the uh, logistics on the bullets and everything else and everything that happens. You start seeing things different and you start realizing that the story that was told on News 13 and then on Channel 7 are totally two different stories. They sound the same, but they aren't the same. And then when you actually read it and then you read what's published in uh, autopsies and different things like that in police reports, you start seeing a different picture because you're getting all these facets and you're bringing them in and you're like, hey, why didn't the news just tell me the truth? Yeah, yeah, you you can dig down and get the facts that they leave out because they want to paint a narrative, not actually report the news. And uh, I, I'll give you my 9-11-ish story. Uh, that's kind of uh, been a driving factor in this is, uh, okay. I mentioned I was an IT guy. I used to work for Kmart. We talked about that before we came yes. on because you were Kmart and you went to Walmart eventually. But I was in IT in, for Kmart and I was in New York in August of 2001. You know the saying, there but for the grace of God go I. One month later, I could have been in those buildings. So... <laughs> That's wild. So by divine right, you were removed from that situation. Yeah, yeah. And also kind of what piqued my curiosity too regarding the subject in the book is I, I've written on various subjects. I've written sci-fi, I've written drama, I've written a couple horror short stories. My writing genesis or I guess you could say God is my muse because these books come to me in a dream. The opening of this book is a dream I had in 2006. Now, obviously that was quite a long time ago. I started, I've spent like seven months in 2006 writing this book and it just didn't come together. So I put it off to the side. Then the dream came back last year and I said, okay, I got the message. Now's the time for this book. And I spent another seven months in uh, 2021, finishing it up, added off to the publisher in January. It was released officially on April 15th for two reasons. One, I was born and raised a Catholic, so I'm Christian. April 15th this year was Good Friday. Okay. And the other reason, April 15th, tax day, right? So there's kind of a little bit of a link 
there is because a lot of people might call the IRS terrorists. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So what inspired you to finish this book? Like what, what happened to you to make you like, I'm not going to say see the light, but what made you decide that, Hey, it's imperative that I get this book out now. Again, that, that dream came back and the realization, the news isn't carrying these stories. Uh, and so people don't have it on their radar. Uh, the Wuhan hysteria consumed everything for a couple years. And so this book serves as not, it's historical fiction. I call it faction. It's art, actual fact, history, and a fictional story that drives it, that flows it all. And so I came to the realization when that dream came back, you know what? People aren't thinking about this topic because it's not on the news and it could happen. Hence again, the title, Terror Strikes Coming Soon to a City Near You because it's not just a New York thing. It's not just a London thing. There's a chapter on London. It's not just Madrid, Spain. There's a chapter on that. It's not Tokyo, Japan, even though there's a chapter on that. It's not even in just Toronto. There's a chapter on that. So this is an international issue and people seem to have gone back to sleep. And like I say in my Naperville chapter, Teresa discovered she's more of an ostrich on this subject than the mama bear she need be to protect her child. So the ostrich theme is in this book regarding several things, not just terrorism, about situational awareness, being awake and alert. And like I said, not about death, but life and living, but not being stupid, not living your life in a fog understanding the things going on around you and that may happen to you. Just because an ostrich may wander onto railroad tracks, bury its head between the rails, isn't gonna stop it from being bowled over by the oncoming train just because it doesn't see and hear it coming. Be no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. You're still going to get run over by that damn train. <laughs> okay, and I get that. I get that. So what What about the lockdowns? What, like, sparked you? Like, what sparked terror strikes? Like, um, what terrorism did you, did, that initially sparked you to, like, be like, man, something really is going on during the pandemic and different things like that? Like, like, cause I'll give you an example. Like, for instance, I, I noticed like, and, and people don't like, it's weird. They don't want to talk about this, but I'm going to say this with you. I noticed like a lot of more police brutality was going on before, like a lot more was televised or was given national attention before the pandemic. When we got towards the end of the pandemic, it was something that they repeated because it seems like that we have to have some sort of controversy, something to keep the world at odds or the U.S., divided in certain areas so what inside the the um lockdown what, what was the first bit of terrorism that you um saw and what what sparked your interest you know yeah that the news was not covering it even though i don't I, there, let me say this uh and then i'll get back to that uh 
in this day and age with high inflation, I understand people don't have the entertainment dollars they used to have, the spare dollars to spend. So I tried to keep the size of my book, you know, down somewhat and to a point where people could still afford to buy it. And the only reason I say that is to lead into this. There, being former IP, there is not a chapter on cyber terrorism, which I could have easily written 50 pages alone on that. There is not a specific section or chapter on mass shootings, even though obviously could have wrote another 50 pages on that. And I joke in the book, uh, because the, it's a book within a book. My lead character, Martin, is a newspaper, Detroit newspaper man, who is writing a book on terrorism. So okay. we follow him. So, and I joke, what, art imitating life, I joke about him saying, war and peace has already been written. He doesn't want to write a 700-page manuscript. That came from my thought process. I didn't want a 700-page book that would cost $40. I wanted it a reasonable price book. But mass shootings are the thing that there were a lot of that you just weren't hearing. And just coming out of the lockdowns, the few, you know, and again, to the top, I keep notes. <laughs> so I want to okay. grab this note. Okay. There have been more than 200 mass shootings in the United States this year alone. How many have you heard of, right? You may have heard of the, the, the Brooklyn subway one. Or, uh, uh, so hence the title, Terror Strikes Coming Soon to a City Near You. Yeah. That can happen anywhere, people. Right. If you think your sleepy little town is exempt, you're wrong. And the note I just grabbed, here are just seven of the mass shooters this okay. year alone. Brooklyn Subway, April 12th. Iowa Nightclub, April 10th. Sacramento, April 3. Sacramento, another April 3. Arkansas Car Show, March 19th. Vegas Hookah Bar. Mark, uh, February 26th, Virginia hookah bar, February 4th. And I say those things with emphasis to show these aren't all just big city issues. These happen in places. Iowa, would you have thought about a mass shooting in Iowa? They can happen anywhere, people, anywhere. And that's crazy because a lot of that probably didn't even make the news because the biggest thing, the biggest emphasis was uh, Buffalo, for instance. Um, and, and I want to say this real quick because I do follow things. So Buffalo, for instance, right where that happened at, a little ways across there's a place called Rochester. Rochester, New York, as a city, we're talking about one of the murderous places. And I know you know this in the U.S., which, you, you know, people like to put a connotation on big cities like Memphis and Baltimore, Detroit, and all these places because you see it on the next 48 Chicago, Louisiana, Chicago, yeah. or New Orleans, New Orleans. They, Los they always, Angeles. Yeah. They always want, yeah, they want to do that. So, like, that's, like, one thing in the news. I was like, you know, I, I work everywhere and with my job. I travel. I was in Rochester, and I was like, wow, this place is like Richmond, Virginia was in the 80s. It's one of those places that's got a lot of murder per capita, and nobody's talking about it. 
And it's crazy because it's one of the most murderous places. I mean, I understand that things happen in Chicago, Detroit, and this place like that. But it's crazy, like you said, how the news uh, agencies and different things like that depict certain things and then they omit. Like not one of those places you talked about that I hear about any of that. Because most of the news media elites are coastal elites. If it doesn't happen in New York or L.A., they don't know, they don't care. Everybody else is flyover country. Okay, and that makes sense. So let me ask you a few questions about some things. Like, let's go back to 9-11 real quick. 9-11, if there had been um, some type of broken window um, policing policy type deal, would that have prevented 9-11? Well, that is tough to answer, but definitely worth the speculation in my opinion. And for those who don't understand what broken windows policing policy is, Rudy Giuliani, when he became governor of New York, instituted a tough on crime principle. And the principle was, you jump the subway turnstiles, we're arresting you. Not this soft on crime stuff, let the little stuff go. And the reason why that's important is because the guy jumping the turnstile usually has committed another crime. You True. know, jumping the subway turnstile is unimportant in the scheme of things. But if you sweat the small stuff, you prevent some of the bigger stuff. So you arrest somebody for petty shoplifting or whatever, the lesser crimes, um, you prevent some of the bigger stuff. So, and that greatly, greatly reduced crime in New York, the city of New York, while he, he was mayor there. And then, of course, 9-11 happened on his watch. So let's project that to a national policy. The 9-11 hijackers, the terrorists, most of them had overstayed their visa. Had we sweated the small stuff, had we picked them up and deported them over the overstay of the visa, 9-11 may have still happened and it would have been still a tragedy. But let's say we got just uh, half of the 15 hijackers. What if we got all, we got three of the four pilots? They would have been able to hit one World Trade Center building and that would have been it. Still a major tragedy, but not the complete and colossal disaster that it was. So would it have prevented it? It might have, but it would have definitely, in my mind, made it less severe. Okay, okay. Makes now, sense? Yes, it does make sense. Now, if, if it, you arrest, like Kate Steinling, people, you know that name, right? That case out yeah. of California. Had the illegal alien who was here been deported four times, been arrested and said, look, if you're not going to stay out of the country, you're breaking our laws, you're staying in jail. Kate Steinley would be alive today. If you sweat the small stuff, then the bigger stuff doesn't happen because it's usually uh, a criminal mindset person that commits the crime. 
you and I are a law-abiding person. We're not breaking the law. The people who break the law are usually repeat offenders, which is why I think we should bring back the three strikes law. Three strikes, you're in for life. Yeah, and that would separate a lot of a lot of issues and different things like that. A whole lot of people that are dead today would still be alive today if that were the case. Because okay. they re-offend and a lot of them escalate in crime. They start off with petty theft. They move to armed robbery. And a lot of these prosecutors, soft on crime, Soros prosecutors, DAs and attorney generals, plea bargain down these armed robbery offenses to just robbery. And therefore they're back out on the streets rather than these people who are constantly screaming about gun control and gun crime are letting people committing crimes with guns right back out on the street. If you don't get them for that, next time they may pull the trigger. And a lot of them do. And again, people are dead. True. Taken out of the world for no reason. So tying in more inside this book, um, there's some places uh, you're, you're native to a, a state that's not too far from me. Uh, what does hell Michigan have to do with this book? Tell me about hell Michigan. I need to know about this. And, and let me tell you my intrigue about Michigan. So um, in my adult years, I travel, I like to go all over Michigan. I go to the upper peninsula. Now that part of Michigan is like above Wisconsin. Don't go out there. I, I, I just, no offense or nothing. It's just, I've never left anything in Marquette or nothing like that. So I've never, I've never been up there. I've been to the top, like, uh, no, I mean, up there, Green Bay, go all the way to Sheboygan and stuff. And I see that little part of Michigan. I'm like, why is that even here? So tell us about Hell, Michigan. What is that? Where is that at? And tell us all about it. Well, it's part in jest and part there for a serious reason. It may seem odd, but if you read, when you read the book, you'll understand why it's there and how it flows the story. Um, Hell, Michigan is uh, about 20, 30 miles west of Detroit. Ooh. And it's, it's just a little town. You know, it, it's got a bar. It's got a post office. It's, it, it's got a putt-putt golf course. <laughs> but people go there even to get married, just to say they got married in hell. <laughs> Usually that's where the divorce occurs. But... <laughs> But there, too, is a chapter on comic relief called Comic Relief. So I try to, as serious as life is, people, you've got to maintain a sense of humor. So Hell, Michigan is in there because uh, they had an event on 666. And I tie that to terrorism. And that's why the story flows. And then, of course, the joke about hell being in Michigan. So, yes, hell does freeze over, people. Every <laughs> winter. <laughs> <laughs> I like that little tie in there. Now, <laughs> let me ask you this about your book. What genre would you consider this book so that the audience can tap in and figure out what, how yeah. they can spin this in their favor? And when I say spin this in their favor, everybody, when they read something, they've got to find a way to make it attached to them. 
and here's the thought of this. I don't want to give you, we're going to go back in time when we were kids. What was the first book you read? Oh, I I wouldn't be able to recall that, but All right, yeah. I'll tell you the first major I'm sure book. It was I, probably a Dr. Seuss book, actually. All right. <laughs> the first major book I ever read was 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Ah, yeah. All right. And what in that book, the what would I tie to myself? Basically, certain parts of it, right? We'll guess it. I mean, it's been a long time. So when I tied myself to that book, it was about the leadership that was inside that book. Um, I learned leadership skills from that book because you had some stuff going on in there that, you know, if you haven't read the book, read the book. And it's been a long time, so I don't remember everything. But, you know, you get my point. So what what tie listeners in, what inside this book is the attraction point? Well, again, I have said it. Life and living. But be awake and alert to what's going on. Don't let others dictate to you your life. Don't allow others to control your life. Do not let fear rule your life. So those are kind of main uh, important themes throughout the whole book. But as for the official genre, it is technically, like I say, I call it faction but it's technically historical fiction and also genre-wise political thriller is how it's listed on, you know, online and the bookstores. But yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot going on in this book uh, under those, under that main theme. Um, Some would like to say uh, a usual question is what book is your book like? Well, when you think George Orwell, George Orwell in 1984 and Animal Farm, and I actually mentioned Animal Farm in my book, warned you of what was to come. This book is telling you, hey, he was right, it's here. (laughs) You're living it now. This is about the, he was right, you're here now. Look around you, you see it. And uh, also, it's kind of a cross between the Clancy novel, Some of All Fears, meets the Deep Impact Morgan Freeman movie. What is the government know, but they're not telling you? Okay. Does that make it a little more intriguing? That does make it intriguing. So so, so let's go through this, the writer process, because the reason that, that I, I do this is because every author writes a book different. So you started the book at one point, you stopped, you kept that manuscript, you put it somewhere, you came back to it later. And when you were writing this, you stopped again because everybody stops in their creative process. What were the challenges that stopped you from writing? Well, in 2006, I was dealing with major writer's block. It just, it just wasn't flowing. I, and let me back up even before that. You said every writer's different. And, you know, unfortunately, I'm going to disagree with you and say this in that. Okay. 99.9% of all authors follow creative writing formulaic guidelines. I took those guidelines and put them through the shredder. I okay. didn't write a formulaic book. 
I did a lot of things in this book. They say, you shouldn't write a book that way. And I immediately flipped the middle finger to those who say that <laughs> and said, I'm writing a different book. If you want a cookie cutter book, 99.9% .9 of all the other writers give you the same basic story with places and names and a few things change, but they're kind of, a drama is kind of the same drama. A thriller is kind of the same thriller. Clancy and Patterson novels are kind of the all same thriller, terrorist kind of book with different names, different places. All that's out the window with my book. If you want a cookie cutter book, buy their stuff. If you want something different, my book's the book for you. But yeah, in 2006, I ran into writer's block. It just wasn't flowing. But then, like I say, in 2021, the dream came back and it just started flowing. Uh, a lot of parts of this book and a lot of parts of all my writing, I like to say, because I'm a Christian, that a lot of this almost isn't really me. It just flows through me onto the page. You know what I mean? Okay. I'm just the conduit. I'm the typist. <laughs> but it okay. but it comes from the universe. It threw me. <laughs> <laughs> if you're not religious, let's put it that way. The universe kind of Okay. Okay. Now, um on the show, we pay homage to a news magazine, which is this crazy, I know. This news magazine is 2020. 2020, when I was younger, it was the first thing, because I'm 37 years old, so that gives you 1985. So, you know, like 90, 91, I was really heavy into news, because after TGI Friday, I watched 2020. It had John Stossel. He was the comedic relief. He, had, he, was, he was a deliberate, he was an intelligent funny. And I, I love John. John Stossel. Oh, to me, he was that show. He's yes. the only reason I watched that show. And I still watch his videos he does today. He's still there. He's still doing pieces, but it's all online now. Okay. So, and then it was Diane Sawyer, which Diane Sawyer probably was better interviewer than Barbara Walters. But Barbara Walters, as a kid, and I'm talking about I was very high functioning. So I would watch her interview be like 10, 40, and it might go over to 1102 because, you know, they used to cut it. If it was something good, they'd let it run to 1105 sometimes, not very often. But what she did in her her interviews, and somebody probably scripted it and wrote it for her. You know, probably Diane Sawyer and John Sussel probably wrote her interviews. <laughs> We're not going to take that away from them because they are great journalists. Um, but what she did in her interviews, she, she questioned things. She got things going. She put the pieces to the puzzle. And anything she was talking about, every conversation she had was open and then it was closed. So real quick, Joseph, we are about to do your 2020 questions. Are you ready? Well, I'm glad you mentioned because uh, you brought to mind something I usually say in other interviews about the book. This is a connect the dots book. Again, there's a lot of sub themes. Uh, not everybody gets it. There was a woman named Susan out of Australia, and I've done three interviews in Australia, and, and we usually, we invariably talk about her, because she left me a bad review. You know, it's going to happen. Not everybody's going to get it, and she couldn't get 
how all these dots connected in my book. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So when you had that initial block in 2006 and you stopped writing, the period of time that you didn't write, what ideas did you jot down just for later reference? Actually, none. Wow. Uh, when I put it down, it was down. It was out of my mind. I was actually writing other things. Those just weren't published. Uh, so uh, until the dream came back to me in 2021, this book was pretty much out of my mind sitting on the shelf. So the book was the book was in your memories museum, basically. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So inside your memories museum, this book eventually fell off the shelf and it came back to your. Yeah, to fell him. off the shelf, hit me in the head. Right. <laughs> right. So so it came back to you. So when this book came back to you, you had this dream and it dawned on you that hey, I've got to write this. And we've reiterated this question twice already here. We've said it. I said it in different ways. But so you start writing the book and it's. It's fluid motion. And with fluid motion, it's like water. It has no form to it because you're writing it. And you're not worried about the social constraints or anything that goes along with structure until you have a finished product, right? Because who cares about proofreading? You, it makes sense when you're saying it in your head till it gets to paper, correct? Yeah. And, so, and, and that's true. You're talking about the fluidity of it too. And yeah, that's true. You, you got to get it down and then you can add some different structure to it. But yeah, it, it, it's kind of, whether it's, if it's flowing, it's flowing and you, you just let it go. And then later, like you said, you step back and say, okay, how can we make this better so that it makes sense to the most amount of people. And again, like Susan, not everybody's going to get it, but how can this book make the most sense to most people. And that was true with this book. I moved chapters about, you know, and had to cut something from this chapter and move it to that chapter to make, to make the flow uh, go and, and, and make sense. And let me express this to any budding writer out there. No book is ever really finished. Eventually, you have to put a deadline. And my deadline was December 31st, 2021. So I could get the book into the hands of the publisher in January. Because there will always be things. And, and that's another reason why you must have other sets of eyes. Editors to proof your own stuff. You can't, you should obviously self-edit. But there will always be things you won't see because it's from your mind. So you may accidentally, while you're reading it, read something the way you think it reads rather than the way it actually reads, if you know what I mean. And here's a tip or a trick. There are many applications or computer programs that you can get to read a file allowed to you. Use a program to read your book back to you because hearing it verbally is also different than reading it and you can catch things. So 
yeah, a book is never really done. There are always things, you know, I think now, even today, uh, you know, oh, darn it, I wish I'd have said that, or darn it, I could have said that differently, or, you know, maybe take that out, but put this in. It's never done, or you'll end up with a 700-page book, and that's just not, you know, today's the world of Twitter. Nobody has any attention span for a 700-page book anymore. True, true, true. So here goes my next question. So you write this book. The book's ready to go get, uh, sends up the editor. You send your book to your editor and you had to get proofreading done. You let a few people read it. And obviously you got thick skin because you're from an area where you better have thick skin. Um, So you, you take in constructive criticism, criticism with merit. We don't take in negative that's not explained. Because if you got to give me criticism, I, I want an explanation behind it. Is that true? Yes. Yeah. So, so what was the what was it like getting the first bit of criticism, and how did it shape you after going back and taking that criticism and putting it against your work? Well, yeah, I like I do have a pretty thick skin, so uh, I I don't let it bother me. And yeah, you're right. If it's constructive criticism that's fine but 99.9 percent of every word in this book is mine i don't use a ghostwriter that's another thing a lot of writers will use a ghostwriter i had considered using one when i picked the book back up again just thinking that well that'll help me get the book done quicker but it was flowing so i went with it i didn't hire one um i wanted this book to be me and obviously, the 0.1%, though, is constructive criticism that I took from my editor. Now, that's the other thing. Uh, you got to understand that an editor is usually a classically high-browed, king's speech kind of person. And, you know, so they're looking at every comma, every period, every every uh, phrase and, you know, so they put forth, of course, some suggested and I accepted obviously uh, bad commas and bad periods and run on sentences, shortening those up and things like that um, to make the, uh, every book is rated on a grade level. And my book originally was at a college senior level. Well, today, unfortunately, you kind of have to bring it down to an eighth grade reading level. So, so we, we did that. There were some words that are, you're making your reader think too much. You got to change that word. And, you know, <laughs> so I did that. But there were some cases like, no. Because an editor won't take into account regional dialects right. or reason, regional phraseology, slang, things of that nature. It's like, no, that sentence reads that way and it must read that way. Because there's a lot of, I was on another podcast, uh, This you're my second today. I was on uh, a, a podcast within uh, Toronto. Uh, well, recording, it wasn't live also. Um, 
And the joke came up uh, that I like to tell about my writing, because uh, he mentioned the word metaphors. And I like to say, I'm far too clever for metaphors. I use meta sixes, but I'm bumped. <laughs> <laughs> so, but you, you kind of see where I'm going with that, I think. You, you, you've got to take into account uh, your readers and understand that each book should have its own regional flair to it. Uh, it's an earnest, and you would use the word homage, uh, to your character, where they're from, making them real for that region. Now, people might not recognize that though, like you've been a lot of different places. Yeah. Uh, so you might catch those subtleties where someone else might not, but it's an important part of character development that they be real to where they you say they are from. Okay, okay, and I like now, that. If you're writing a book about the South, you're not going to use the King's English. No. That's not how they talk. You're going to get that y'all in there. You're going to get all that stuff. <laughs> one, one, one thing I like that you talked about, uh, about the editing process and in the flow, things have to be concise and being concise is one of those things that at eighth grade level, you know, anything under high school, you can be vivid to a degree, but you got to be concise. You got to be straight to the point. And sometimes getting to the point, people uh, make connotations and those connotations are what make people not understand people's artwork or content overall. So like you said, the lady um, in Australia had an issue. she made a connotation herself of your your work and she she went about it and left a bad review but the bad review after you, you read her review you went back and you read your stuff and you said okay i can challenge her bad review with this so once you were able to challenge her bad review with this you were able to put it to light you um set it free and sent it you know down the road and it went to flint or it went to battle creek and then eventually went to chicago and got out of the united states so moving on from that um this book's published. It's out right now. Um, people can pick this book up readily available across all type of uh, booking platforms online, correct? Is there a hardback edition of this? No. I, again, I wanted to keep the cost down. Hardcovers are more expensive. I want to save you money. It's, it's soft copy. You can get a Kindle, but I really don't recommend the Kindle version just because there's some special formatting and special fonts in the hard book. And once you read it, it will make sense because there's a letter to the editor. So it's a separate font and offset. There's also something, there's a blog within this book. We're in the internet age. People are used to reading blogs. So Correct. I did, again, through the formulaic guidelines to the wind and said, I am gonna be the first author to ever introduce a blog within a book. And I did that. And that's, you know, formatted specially. And it just doesn't read as well on the Kindle. So I really recommend the soft copy. But I want to go back to, like you said, about the eighth grade reading level. Even still, though, I get people, because like I said, this is not a shoot em up kind of thing. This is an right. intellectual, deep thinking level type book. I have people who have said to me, you know, about the fourth chapter in, 
I realized that I needed to read each chapter at least twice because there would be something I'd missed. Because like you said, being concise and sometimes if you're reading something, you might accidentally gloss over something that you didn't realize was there. And another thing of importance I put in my book, like let's double meanings, all right? Like the title, Terror Strikes. Strikes, yes. A portion of my book, strikes as in an attack. Strikes as in balls and strikes in baseball. There's a baseball sub-theme in here, hence a double meaning. And that is one of only like a dozen words where double meanings are in there for a reason. Okay. And I like that. So people now, say, you know, I didn't get that till I went back and read it again. <laughs> and uh, and tying everything together, um, Mr. Leonard, I want to thank you for coming on West Virginia and Commonplace. And one thing I do want to say uh, to the listeners, um, I'm going to take a stab at and read a little deeper into this. Um, Intuitive thinking seems like that's going to be a theme that you've got to have. You got to have intuitive thinking to read this book. And and I really appreciate that because we need things to challenge the core of what our normalcy is now with news and different things like that. So Mr. Leonard, could you please tell the audience where they can meet and greet you on the internet and any mission statement that you want to put out there real fast before we end the show? Uh, yeah, uh, I, I want to add this uh, one thing. Uh, it's at the bottom of my, my website. I have two websites, so let's do that first. You could go to josephmleonard.us. And again, there's no Owen Leonard, josephmleonard.us. And also, the that's my author site. I also have a book or a site dedicated to the book, terrorstrikes.info. Again, that's terrorstrikes.info. Now, there's a contact tab on either one of those sites if you want to reach out to me for any reason whatsoever. But at the bottom of my book site, I have at the, in the footer of every page, fair warning. Many deem this book controversial and upsetting in many places, which it is meant to be. It's meant to make people think, to challenge everyone's own and others' intentions motives and your own morality and mortality okay and i thank you for that and once again i am jr from west virginia uncommonplace and i had joseph m leonard with me to talk about his new book terror strikes finish the rest of it for me pardon i finished the rest of it for me terror strikes terror strikes coming soon to a city near you I'm, i'm glad you prompted that because there are a lot of books called terror strikes so the subtitle is indeed important, or, or you'll get page upon page upon page of books just called Terror Strike. So yeah, Terror Strike coming soon to a city near you. And that's important because again, as we discussed in the mass shootings, there was Iowa and Arkansas in there. People, it can happen anywhere. It Indeed. really can. No doubt in that. And once again, I'm JR from West Virginia Commonplace. You will be able to find out 
any and everything about Joseph M. Leonard in our show notes. That way we can build some SEO. We can get it moving around Google and get those bots moving on Tumblr and different places like that. And uh, once again, I want to thank him for coming on the show. And I am signing off. Thank you for having me. Take care.